I first came to know Gavin Coleman as a key player in the Police Academy stunt show at Warner Brothers Movie World. I went on to work alongside Gavin in the development and launch of Hollywood Stunt Driver, which followed Police Academy as the flagship production within the park. Gavin today continues to work actively in the film industry as a stunt performer, while also enjoying a successful career as a professional driving coach. We spoke after hours in my office at Movie World after not having caught up for years. At one point, you will hear Gavin reference John when talking about the creation of Hollywood Stunt Driver. Here he is acknowledging John Menzies, our Chief Executive Officer at the time, and the man whose vision sits behind not only Hollywood Stunt Driver, but the very birth of Warner Brothers Movie World and the Australian Outback Spectacular. Settle in, there's a lot to cover. Don't forget, if you are enjoying Park Life, please be sure to rate, review and share. It all helps in spreading the word. You can also find me at parklifestories at gmail.com. Time now to meet Gavin Coleman. Gav, before we jump into your park life, can you just tell us right now, what are you doing? Well, firstly, mate, let me just say it's a privilege to sit here with you and do this. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity to come and sit and have a chat to you, man. It's been, like you said, it's Gav, been a while. you're saying all the right things. This is a, <laughs> this is a great way for it to start. But uh, it has been a while. What's, what's happening in your life right now? Right now, um, I'm working with BMW. I've got this... Uh, I often pinch myself. This this role that I'm doing with them as a as a BMW um, driving experience instructor, we travel the entire country basically to all the great tracks: Phillip Island, Eastern Creeks, you know, Sydney Motorsport Park. And um, we're up here in Queensland at the moment, and um, so we get to you know the, the Bend in Adelaide, some really fun circuits with all the um, high performance BMWs, and basically giving people an experience in these cars. How far back does your love of cars go before we get into the career side of it? But wow. When did that even begin? Uh, well, I grew up in this little country town, northwest New South Wales, called Walgett. Um, it's sort of, you know, eight and a half, nine hours sort of northwest of Sydney in the middle of nowhere. And um, as a teenager, uh, you know, I think the, the very first car, when people ask me that question, the very first car that really springs to mind for me, or love of cars, was when I was doing competitive swimming. I went to Sydney, and the, I could hear this car in a car park. We're walking along the street, and I could hear the garage door going up, and I thought, what is that noise? And it was sounded amazing. And up out of the driveway comes this Porsche Turbo, like about a 1986 model um, and it just was red and with the big whale tail on the back and it was loud and I just went and it stopped right in front of me and I just went, oh my God, I'm in love with that car. Yeah. And again, it was just a, a you know, it was, a, it was a pipe dream to think that one day I'll ever get to drive one, let alone coach in those cars, which is what I do now as well. Um, and uh, that was, I guess, where it all began. And then it was just something I always wanted to do. And um, moving from that uh, that little town, you know, I had a as as I grew as it from a teenager, ended up with an old what, what I what was called a HQSS, which was based on the Monaro. It was like a four door, four door um, the, I guess, a muscle car here in Australia. And um, it was a friend of mine's car. He was actually killed in a car accident. And his wife said, um, 
man, I know you love this car so much. I'd really love if anyone to take it, you could have it, you know, as in buy it. Mm. Um, so I bought this car. It was this big and it was red and loud, big V8. And that's, I guess, where the passion for, you know, driving fast started. Um, did a little bit of st- speedway, you know, work out in this little country town and, and then moving to the Gold Coast and become, wanting to become an actor brought me over here. And uh, so then I joined a, a theatre here in Bean Lee and um, auditioned for a, a role as a, a, an attraction presenter here at Movie World. And funnily enough, uh, I was only here for the Christmas period. You know how just before Christmas they had a big intake of people for Christmas? Worked the Christmas. So I was here only like eight weeks. So two months. End of January, they're about to tip everybody out. The uh, employees' dining room here was packed. You know, you sit Marilyn Monroe's sitting here and Superman's sitting there and they've got their bibs on so they don't spill their food all over their, their outfits. And this guy comes out the door and he's got a plate of food and there's no seats, bar one, right next to me. And I look up and it's Vic Wilson. I didn't know that at the time, but it's the stunt coordinator for Police Academy. And he's looking around, he's got his plate of food and his drink, and he's going, oh, God, well, there's nowhere to sit. And I said, mate, you can sit here. There's a spot here if you want to sit down. And he, oh, thank you so much. And he sits down. And uh, we start eating. There's no conversation in the beginning. He said, oh, look, I appreciate you, you know, pointing this spot out for me. And he goes, so, you know, what do you do here? And I told him. And I said, what about yourself? And he goes, oh, I run the Police Academy stunt show. And he said, have you seen it? And I went, no, 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 I haven't seen it. <laughs> I've been too busy. And he goes, uh, where are you from? And I go, oh, a little country town, told him. And he goes, oh, you're a, you're a country boy. And I go, yeah. And he goes, you're a, you weren't on a farm by any chance. And I go, yeah, Dad had a little sheep and wheat farm out there. He said, oh, you'd be able to ride a motorcycle. And I go, yeah, I can actually. And he goes, look, this is a bit of left field, but you wouldn't by any chance know how to do a wheel stand, would you? And I went, mate, of all the things to ask me, because I did a little bit of motocross and they used to call me the, the, the emu because I, I was fairly quick on the ground, but I could never take the jumps. So on the big tabletops, everyone, that's where they'd all go past me, you know, and it would just leave me for dead. And, um, but I loved it. But when it came to the gym, the, sort of the gym motocarners and things, they'd have this wheel standing competition. And I said, I've got a box of trophies and ribbons sitting in my apartment here, uh, actually at Beanley at the time. And I said, I could show you all of those. It's about all I've got to show you. And he goes, oh my God, I can't find a motorcycle rider that can hold a balance wheelie. And I go, well, how far do you want me to go? And I'll just keep going as long as you want me to. And he goes, you've got to audition for the show. So he sent me over to Martin Molam, I think it was at the time. Who was entertainment manager. Entertainment manager. And he goes, oh, Gavin, unfortunately, look, the, the auditions have closed. And I said, Vic Wilson told me to come and talk to you and something about you need a motorcycle wheel stand guy. And he goes, oh, okay, you're in. Monday morning, be here. So I auditioned, you know, cutting a lot out here with a bunch of other guys. And I'm looking at these blokes and they're all muscly and like all very fit. And, and I've got, oh, I've got no hope with these blokes. Funny thing was, um, when we auditioned, uh, I just, you know, obviously the motorcycle, got to the motorcycle part of it and balance wheeling up and down as and he said okay and then started doing donuts he goes mate i can see you can ride a bike 
perfect. And then I did the high falls and did all the scaffold stuff. And these great big muscly blokes, because they weren't very agile, really struggled with that. Yeah. Which I thought was quite bizarre because I was quite fairly wiry, you know. Just in that space, for those that don't know, we're talking about the Police Academy stunt show, which was the show that was the centerpiece of the movie world off upon its opening and became a show unlike anything else in the country <coughs> in a very short amount of time, very highly regarded, mm. not only in Australia but around the world. And Vic was at the forefront of that. So it's very serendipitous that you have that moment with someone that can open that doorway for you. That when you get to a casting like that and you're on the bike, that's one thing, but you just kind of very quickly mentioned high falls and, and scaff climbing. What background had you had in doing stunts like that? I was athletic because the funny thing is I did, ath- I did like sprinting, so I was fairly fast on my feet, but I also did swimming competitively. So I had a lot of upper body strength um, and... When it came to the scaffold, there's a there's a bar like a parallel bar that we had to jump up, grab, and swing our feet forward, up and over. If that makes sense, yeah, um, might be tough for the listeners to understand what that kind of looks like. But you kind of run in, and your inertia or inertia is pushing, or you know, the momentum is pushing your body forward, and you lift your legs up and over, and then come back down on you know uh, sort of before the bar and um, these guys, because they were so big, when they just grabbed the bar and just tried to do a chin up and then lift their legs up and yeah. they couldn't get their legs over, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Whereas I, I just did one step in, up and over, landed it. And Vic goes, well, that was a fluke, do another one. And I went, okay, and grabbed the bar, I was flicked over, did, and did it perfectly. Yeah. And when it came to the scaffold, climbing up on top, up the side of that cla- scaffold, just had loads of upper body strength. So yeah. it was nothing to me. It just zipped up and then zipped back down. When it came to the car and the donuts, I'd done some speedway driving. So the oversteer, which is like what we call a drift now. So getting the back of the car out and holding a little bit of a drift. Yeah. That's all you had to do was just do a 180 power slide. It was easy. I found that quite comfortable to do. You know what I mean? It was second nature to me. Yeah. Um, so all the car, all the vehicle stuff was a no-brainer for me. And then when it came to doing, for example, the high falls, we started at a 10-foot 10, 10 platform and then went 20 and then to 30. Yeah. So he showed me the technique. Um, and I, I guess at the time, um, probably my wife would probably uh, disagree with this, but I was a pretty good listener at the time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he just said, this is exactly what I want you to do and land in this pad. And I just mimicked exactly what he did um, and then went to the next level and so on. And then I think I was one of the only guys to go off the very top flat platform in that audition. The thing about Police Academy, that, or, that whole audition, what I didn't know at the time was about to change my whole world. It lit, I had a direction I was going in. I wanted to be an actor. That's where I was going. I was focused. I had an agent. And then Vic comes along and says, mate, you've got something I I think the stun industry needs. You've got a, a bit of a raw talent there. And Vic had an eye for um, potential. That was the big word he used to use. I'm mm. looking for potential. Um, so I, th- I guess he saw a lot of potential there for me, which was wonderful. And then all of a sudden, my life just took a hard right turn. He introduced me to Chris Anderson, the stunt coordinator on the Gold Coast, who had um, Oz stunts. Um, and then I started training under Chris. 
and all of his amazing guys like Mick Van Morsel and um, Darko Tuscan and um, just in that space because you're starting now to refer to Australian icons in the stunt industry yeah. and film and television etc. But just to go back a little bit for those that are listening too, and it's one of the themes in the podcast is just unpacking motivations for people. Where does that fearlessness or where did that fearlessness come from as a young man that that opportunity opened up? Obviously, there was a sense of what self-belief. You left that small country town of Walgett, yeah. found yourself on the Gold Coast chasing a dream. That's one thing. But then you meet this guy who says, now I'm going to get you to throw your body off here, throw that car around there. Where does that fearlessness come from? Were you consciously aware of it? Or what, what drove you? I was absolutely scared shitless. Yeah. And to be honest, uh, like I, I just remember, I, just, I had so much faith in, in Vic and what he was showing me. And um, Was it a case of if he believes in me, then there's no yes, reason I shouldn't? 100%. Mm. Because at the time, I didn't really have a lot of self-belief. Mm. My friends would say, oh my God, you're a funny bugger. You should be an actor. Okay, I'm going to be an actor. So that's why I had so many friends and family saying, oh my God, mate, you're making everyone laugh and you've got to get into acting somehow. So that's kind of what drove me in that direction. And then Vic, uh, when I started the stunt show, I did. I performed the Police Academy show on my second day. Hmm. So he, he basically, on my very first day of training, he goes, that's the side bike and sidecar, learn how it separates. Uh, where, where we'd ride in and we'd kick a little um, release lever and the sidecar would split away from the bike and it had a little electric motor in it and then the other bad guy would be scooching around in that and then he'd go backstage and I'd ride off on the, on the main part of the motorbike. Um, and I nailed it straight away. I guess I just had that feeling on the bike. And, um, and he just, he, even Vic would just keep saying, man, you, you're, you've got to just follow this. You've, you've got really got some talent there. Um, the high falls, I loved doing the high falls. All the car stuff. Um, he's, he did say to me once, you know, with the stunt industry and you, if you go further with it, and he said, I believe that you've got something there that you could really make a really good life for yourself. He said, um, you do need to, you've got to diversify, so you're going to be good at the high falls, uh, a bit of everything, fight scenes, and we'd go over, we'd practice fight sequences here every day. Um, um, obviously vehicles, um, we did a, a burn, a small burn, fire burn, which is just on, the, because when we lit one of the guys up on their back. Um, and he'd say, ideally find uh, something that you specialize in, something that you're really good at and you're passionate about, specialize in that. And that will be you, what you're known for. And then when coordinators hear about you, then they'll get you in for those jobs. And that's pretty much what happened. Can so, I just say in that space, and we talk about this a lot in the podcast series as well, it seems to me you had mentorship with Vic. And the mentorship seems to be a recurring theme in a lot of people's success. Mm. When they find the right person comes along at the right point in their story yeah. and provides a bit of a compass. And it sounds like Vic was, uh, was a mentor and you were obviously a very willing student. Yeah, mate. Look, he was like, you know, he wasn't that much older than me, so I didn't want to. I don't want to say he was like a father figure, but he was. He yeah. was just 
uh, you know, he had faith, but he, his life experiences, his stories that he would tell us about when, you know, some of the stunts he did, you know, world uh, land speed record and crashing through a, a power pole in a jet car and <laughs> was just mind boggling to us. Yeah, you know? something to aspire to. Absolutely. Yeah. And But he would, I think when Vic would say to you, man, and I saw him do it with a lot of other guys that have gone on to become amazing stunt men, stunt coordinators in their own right. Uh, and that's Vic. Like he had this knack of making you just feel really special. Um, you'd finish a show and he'd come in and he'd be laughing about something you did, and you know, um, you know, he'd give you the show notes and he'd he'd give you the positive, and then oh look, we need to fix a little, maybe this little piece here, but then he'd finish off with something really good, and you'd just you'd be walking on a cloud. It was mm. it was phenomenal, and then. With that show as well, because as you know, it was very dialogue heavy. There was only six minutes of driving in that show. Six minutes of actual car I action. think you make a good point there, just to stay in that space. I don't want to cut your flow. Mm. But I've made that case too over the years, is that part of what I think the big success of Police Academy was, was how well-crafted it was as a character piece. There's so much well-defined character choices made. And I didn't realise the stunt or the drive element was that brief. Mm. But that talks to the strength of the writing yeah. and then the, uh, the strength of the casting too. And would I be right, once that certain cast members got together and got in rhythm and flow, there'd be a level of improvisation and natural growth and expansion of scenes and characters. Yeah. So the show almost had this evolution as it went through its timeline. I was about to say that exactly. Mm. Like it definitely evolved from the beginning because I had one of the original scripts um, after Vic had left, I remember going through all the files and finding one of the original scripts, and I've, I remember a lot of the dialogue had changed so much. Um, and uh, you're right with the formula with certain certain performers. You could do, and and obviously there was such a big group of people, and there was obviously a bit of turnover over the sixteen, sorry, yeah, sixteen years that it ran. Um, you. Certain performers would, you know, you for example, uh, one of the gags in the, in the show with the audience, some of the gags actually for the show for the audience actually came out of an actual mistake that, you know, something, someone said something, a, a line, and a, an audience member would react and then that would go back and forwards a little bit and they would go, and the crowd would go nuts. And then obviously then we'd start, you know, change that little bit of dialogue in the script and that would become, that's how it would evolve. And even with the, the gun gag up on the roof, we had a, the gun would come out, freeze to the bad guy. The bad guy would knock the gun out of his hand. And then it'd be, then we, then we, they worked out if he had another couple of guns, how funny would it be? He just kept pulling guns out, two guns, freeze. Mm. And then the bad guy, because the bad guy knocked the gun out, look at the audience, says, you, you know, break the fourth wall, look at the audience and go, Ha, I've got him now. Oh, hang on, there's another gun. Whack, he knocks that gun out of the way. Then the third gun comes out. At the same time as the, the you know, the bad guy, OSS 2, is looking at, the, OSS 1's looking at the, the audience, or Silk Stocking Gang 1 is looking at the audience. He knocks that gun. And then the final one is when he frees with his fingers. And then the bad guy throws his hands in the air. Yeah. You know, that, so a little gag like that just was came up by accident. And yeah. that, that's how the entire show just evolved over the years. So you, you're growing your acting chops, your comedic timing chops, your improvisational chops, yeah. plus you're conditioning your drive and your ride skills and doing all of this naturally through the process of being in that show. 
which is probably one of the reasons too, right? If you multiply that process out from for you to other people, like your Jimmy Christensen's, yeah. who's obviously a renowned coordinator mm. now in the country doing a lot of work. Yeah. Um, then a lot of people were going through that same kind of similar experience, weren't they? Yeah. Growing skills. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the great things that Vic has done as a legacy, a life legacy, is introduced a generation back into the industry to sustain it for another decade or more. Yeah. It's, it's funny, Michael. I, I, I'm very, very thankful to all the people that gave me the leg up to do what I do today. Mm. I still work in the film industry. I'm booked on a show in Melbourne currently. Um, uh, so I look back when I'm doing these jobs, For even at when I worked, you know, well, I work for BMW now, and it's one of the best jobs I've ever, ever had. This is phenomenal what mm. we get to do in these cars on track. I look back, what led me to this? Well, Police Academy led me to this because mm. when we did the, we did a, when I was at Police Academy, for a few years in a row, we did a high-speed um, uh, display on, the, like stunt driving display on the Indy track. And if you remember that, we would practice that at Norwell at the Holden Performance Driving Centre. Just north of Movie World. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when we did this training, the, the chief instructor was watching and he goes, comes up to me one day, he says, mate, are you in charge of this? So I go, yeah. He goes... If you ever want a job, come and talk to me. And mm. because at the time I was actually training with Vic, training the other guys other in, at police academy, I said, mate, I would love to learn what you do because then it would help me train other drivers to do what we do as stunt drivers. So, you know, and I just wanted another feather in my cap really for that. And that once I started learning, you know, advanced and defensive and then we did V8 super school and all these things up there, um, it did certainly gave me, I think, a bit of um, leverage, if you like, when it come, came to training people that might have a bit of difficulty understanding certain things, whether it's the physics in the car and the dynamics mm. of what's happening. But it helped me get the message across or, you know, to understand what's happening in a car to help them become better drivers. And not meaning to cut your flow, but to mm. go back in time, because I do want to come back to where you are yeah. now. If we go back in time, this kid from Walgett is now... I'm pronouncing that right, aren't I? Yeah, Walgett. Walgett. Yeah. <laughs> this kid is uh, from the country, is, is growing, he's, he's getting his chops. You're part of a, a really popular show on the Gold Coast and one of the premier theme parks in the country. When, when does the film work start to open up? And, and suddenly the dreams of being an actor aren't so much uh, in place. I guess the dream has morphed into something else and you're finding you've got a pathway into film and television. When did that first start and what and in what capacity? So that was when Vic Wilson introduced me to Chris Anderson. And Chris, uh, who had Oz stunts here on the Gold Coast, had a, a, a factory, basically a stunt factory. And he had, you know, uh, every Friday morning, <clears throat> excuse me, Friday, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, every Tuesday night, I think it was, and Saturday morning, sat, definitely Saturday mornings, we would go there, uh, sometimes before work here, because it would kick off at seven o'clock. Um, and we'd go and we'd train and we'd do fight sequences and we'd do a bit of rigging and we'd do a bit of uh, falls, you know, falls onto these tiny little... I look back and, <laughs> wow, what we were falling onto is how someone never, you know... it was. And again, it was... You, you were taught technique. If you didn't have that technique of how to land, you would hurt yourself. So 
you know, every time you'd land and if it hurt a little bit, you'd change something to make sure it didn't hurt the next time. And you wouldn't, you'd never say anything because so, you wouldn't want to be seen to be a bit weak. So with with this kind of training, was this the, the, the beginning of a pathway into film? Absolutely, yeah. Right. yeah. So because what happens, you start training with a stunt coordinator to get, um, and, and generally in that team, there'll be other stunt coordinators there as well that are either training and or watching um, because at some point you needed, at the time, um, two, I think it was, uh, sign-offs from stunt coordinators. And I think at the time it was four stunt actors. And all the guys that you're training with there doing fight sequences and falls and some car stuff were all stunt, they were all stunt actors. So I got to know these people and all the people at Police Academy were all stunt actors. So I got to know this great bunch of people. And of course, once you got a, some rapport and there was a little bit of, I guess, mutual respect there, they would sign you off on... We think we was ready for the grading and we would do the grading for the stunt industry would be you had to be proficient in um, five areas. So fire, water, vehicles, animals and um, heights. Hmm. No, in heights. Yeah. So um, and then you'd go and get all those qualifications, if you like, you know, paddy ticket for water and you do um, some abseiling and some high falls and stuff for to be signed off on heights. And Vic would sign you off here for how many high falls you did. So yeah. you do go right through that. Um, you get a high performance driving certificate. Basically, what I'm doing now as an instructor, you'd have to go and do that uh, somewhere and get that certificate to say you've done that for vehicles and so on. And once I got that and put that grading in, Chris then started booking me for work. Yeah. And um, first job I worked on was a show called Space Above and Beyond. And I was one of the one of the um, people going up into space, and the you know the ship was getting hit by things, and mm. had to fall out of a bunk down onto. The, and I thought it was just the best thing, and it was exciting, and you're working with a team, so it was just awesome. And then I just wanted more and more and more. How, so, how did that first day on set feel? Comfortable, like nah, home? Nah, no, I was nervous as hell, and yeah. I remember stretching, and I remember doing heaps of stretching, thinking if I have to land. You know, because I think at the time we were falling out like a, of an eight-foot bunk. We're all right up in the air. And, they were, and it was a hard floor because it's the concrete floor in the studios. But they made it look like, a, you know, a, obviously a spaceship floor. Wow. But it was concrete. It was a hard landing. And we had elbow and knee pads on and hip pads, I think, at the time. And I remember just, you know, as you had to act like it's bouncing because the ship's being hit and you just hit the deck. And all these spark hits and, and uh, pyrotechnics are going off. Um but I remember finishing it, and um, I think it was, uh, oh, I can't remember who it was I worked with, but they said, so did this? Did all the stretching help? And I went, absolutely. I bounced like a ball when I hit the ground, <laughs> and I'm not hurt. So, yeah. And it was just, I th yeah, it was just that um, excitement of being on set, and um, yeah. Did so, the work start to come in? It did, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah because so, there was a period, we're talking mid-late oh, 90s, there was a period on the Gold Coast particularly yep. where film and television was fertile. There were incoming series yep. and there was a lot of work. Mm. Flipper. Flipper. Remember the TV series Flipper? Yeah. I remember working on that. Um, Beastmaster, The Lost World, those two series. I got loads of work on right. both of those seasons yeah. under different coordinators on those. So Donnie Vaughan and Joe Schwager, worked, they were coordinating on those. Joe was on Flipper as well. Um, and then fire above and beyond, a uh, fire above and beyond. Fire, it was filmed in in Brisbane, a TV series called Fire about a fire station. Yeah. So I got a bit of work on that. 
Um, Jackie Chan's first strike came to Brisbane. Vic was on that. <laughs> right. I remember working under Vic as a coordinator. He was coordinating that. We did a bunch of driving and you know diving out of the way of cars, jumping into shopping centres. Can I just ask? Let's just stay there for a moment. Here's this kid now from Walgut, yeah, who's yeah. in a Jackie Chan movie. <laughs> and what was that experience like? Were you in scenes with him? Yeah, yeah, we see, and his whole stunt team that were famous for for their falls and you know the incredible stunts. from the Hong Kong era. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was that was quite mind blowing because he was probably the most you know, high-profile high actor that I'd actually worked with before. Um, and just watching him do sequences was... What was that like? Amazing. Because, mm. you know, they're so, they know each other so well, that team. And obviously they were, they're constantly training. Yes. Or they were. They were constantly training. Um, they had um, fight sequences that they could m basically manipulate from one scene to another even though it's a very similar fight but it looked different from a different angle let's yeah. say you know and wow and just the way they would land you know do some big hard hits and then you know fly out one guy i think fell off an elevator and landed on the ground only maybe eight or ten feet but it was a hard hit and i'm thinking oh that would have taken the air out of him but he just got up didn't look, it just was ready to do it again. You know what I mean? Was there a, um, was there a respect from Jackie for the Australian talent? Oh, yeah. Look, I yeah. was just what background guy. Sure. So I wasn't one of the main, you know, I wasn't doubling anyone or yeah. anything like that. And I played a couple of different roles in it. I played a shopper diving out of the way of a car. And then I played a police officer getting, they smashed a windscreen and dragged me out through the window, yeah. uh, throughout the side window. And that was another coordinator called Rick Anderson, who used to be here at Movie World as well, yeah. at the... At the um, uh, the you know the the cowboy show that was here the, oh, West, the western action western action oh western show, action yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, big guy like when he dragged me out of that car I I felt like I weighed nothing really like, oh my god he was so yeah, strong yeah. yeah and a great another great coordinator just a good guy um, but yeah just I think just learning that the craft and you just you're just so hungry to learn off these people so yeah. you'd watch what they're doing. I remember watching Joe Schwager and another, I can't know, it's just these names um, at a loss at the moment, another another stunt guy ended up doing safety, but, oh, goodness me, I've forgotten his name. But they were doing this hand fight sequence, just practicing, and they, everywhere, every time I'd see them in a break, they'd practice, 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 and they'd get faster and faster and faster. And I'd go, that's what I want to do. I want to practice like that. So I'd find guys that would, would want to train like Kia Beck. We'd go up and get cars and go to the Brisbane airport and practice, you know. And um, Cam Ambridge, we'd do motorcycle stuff. And like, there's all these guys that we'd practice, you know, find somewhere in old cars and practice. And so then you get known by people. Like even Chris would find out that you're doing all this stuff and go, okay, I've got a film coming up. The next film, next big film for me, I guess, was um, The Marine um, with John Cena. I got to double Robert Patrick, uh, a brilliant, you know, another great, well-known actor. Robert, as you know, was the the Terminator Two cyborg um, in obviously the, the the liquid cop, you know, that in Terminator Two. Um, I got to double him, and then um, I'm going to get this wrong, but was it the T1000 or was that Arnold? Someone it listening. Was the 2000. I think it was the next one. Yeah, yeah. Someone. Any. There'll be people yeah. screaming. Yeah, of course. At this, so I'm not even yeah, going to go there. I probably should know that too. But Robert Patrick, was, that was a career-defining role. 
Yeah, so wow. He, and John Cena, of course. John, I remember, I mean, John would come out of the trailer and just walk up. When I'm sitting at the... In, in you mean you, you could tent. see him? Oh, yeah, he was right there. I mean, you, you mean you couldn't see him? You, uh, you, you, you can't, can't see me. You can't see me? <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Uh, but again, <laughs> uh, and uh, what blew me away about a guy like that who, you know, uh, everyone knows who he is. He's super famous. But when he came past, here's a guy, he didn't know what I was. He didn't. I mean, I'm dressed like Robert, so obviously he's obviously looked and gone, well, this was Robert's either stand-in or is he stunt double. Um and he came past the, the, the table I was sitting at and it was before mobile phones. So I'm just sitting there with a coffee. And he goes, hey, man, I'm just sitting by myself. And he goes, hey, man, how's your day? And I go, yeah, good, good. Uh, how's your day? You know, just I was so I was so nervous yeah, with him. Yeah. And um, but he was the nicest guy, genuinely nice human being. Yeah. And he just wanted to chat. Uh, yeah. In that space, I remember one of the, the guys from PA who had, or Police Academy, had worked on, I think it was Wolverine or The Wolverine when it may have shot in Sydney. Mm. It was one of the X-Men films. Yeah. And I remember him telling the story. I'm sure it wasn't was you. It Shay? Might have been Shay Adams. Adams telling yeah. the story, yeah. And if I've got it right, I remember him saying on the first day on set, <clears> the, <throat> the guys were all milling around waiting for whatever was to happen next and you know getting the day ready and Hugh Jackman walked on to set and there was a bit of a buzz and he's walking past and meeting people and saying hello and he came straight over to the studies and said good morning and then recalled working on something with someone prior on something else Australia Australia I bet it was Australia that would have been Shay Adams yeah, yeah. and another then, legend and then the started making yeah. conversation oh hey and and asked a question about his personal life. Wow. Uh, yeah. And whether it was something to do with his partner or whatever it was. But he, he had an immediate recall of, oh, I remember we spoke on the set of Australia mm. and you were telling me that this was happening and that was happening. What's the latest with that? And he answered. But he said, when he walked away, we were all like, how does he even remember me? Yeah. That's Hugh Jackman. Yeah. But the fact that I recall the stunt guy and I recall he had this happening in his life, and it's been a few years, mm. but I'm going to have a, I can have a conversation with him. Yeah. But I guess when they often say don't, you don't want to meet your idols, but you've probably had experiences too where you do, and yeah. it's a great it's a great thing. Uh, look, I, I always I couldn't believe um, Chrissy Anderson got me to double Ethan Hawke. Hmm. A lot of the, all the driving stuff, a little bit of stunt stuff in the studio. What was the production? Um, Daybreakers. Daybreakers, the vampire. Yeah, the vampire. Yeah, and. Uh, when I met him the first time, again, an extremely intelligent man. Oh, my God. And just, again, a nice, just a nice human. Yeah, he's just a nice guy. And um, I just remember the first time I, I think I was standing next to him on set. And I look, I look, and then as he looks at me, I kind of look away. And, and, he, and he stays looking at me. And I look back, and he kind of half smiles and says, hey, man. How you doing? And I go, yeah, good, 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 yeah, good. And back to focusing on what the stunt is ahead of me, you know. And he must have just had a chuckle going, God, that guy, he just looks nervous. He looks nervous. And I, I, I was trying to hide it, but I couldn't. Because, mm. you know, obviously Training Day, some awesome movies. And incredible. What an actor. Yeah, he's having a renaissance now. Yeah. You know, on the back of oh. Moon Knight, The Northman. Yeah. Uh, oh. He's having a renaissance. Yeah. Can I ask you this while we're in that uh, zone? Mm. 
William Hurt passed away not so long ago and was one of the all-time Hollywood greats. I remember being in your office when we were working on Hollywood Stunt Driver and you had a photograph of you and William Hurt. Yeah. Looked like you'd both crawled out of a car wreck, so you are obviously <laughs> stunt-doubling him. Yep. What was that experience like with someone of that calibre? That was on Nightmares and Dreamscapes in Melbourne and it was quite, kind of surreal because, again, what an actor. Like, wow. Um uh, Danny Baldwin, who was the stunt coordinator on that, um, you were focused the whole time you were there on that set. Um, and William was effectively playing the role of a, a, a killer, like he was a, a contract killer, and all these toys were coming alive of the person that he took out and uh, because he was a toy maker, and for some reason he had to you know, take this guy out, took him out, all the toys came alive and... We're chasing him and basically trying to kill him, you know, take him out. And um, it was funny because in that role, he was the whole time on set, even in even in uh, makeup, because you'd sit, often sit in the same makeup room and they'd look across and try to get everything the same, the same marks on the face, the same blood spatter on the shirt. Um, uh, he hardly said a word mm-hmm. and it was in character. And then when, even on set, you could see he was in that character. And even some of the crew would go, yeah, he's a method actor and that's what he does. And he's, the whole time, you don't even chat. He's in that, he's got to be in that mode. You know what I mean? And I remember the very last day of shooting, they called, you know, cut and that's a wrap. And that was the photo, that was the the day we took the photo together. And it was like a switch being flicked. Yeah. And he came completely out of the character, and, and he, he, was, he was accessible. Oh my god! Yeah. And it was, and he was chatting, and he was, um, thanks, man. Like that was, thank you so much. And he was thankful. And even though the stunts that I felt weren't amazing, you know, falling headfirst through a through an eight foot ceiling onto the ground, you know, which was effect uh, was a um, an elevator. Um, I didn't think that was a crazy stunt, but he was like, oh man, I thought you were going to break your neck and thank you so much. Thank you for taking Isn't the hits. And, and I was amazed at the difference in this person, you know, and again, another really nice man. Yeah, I, I heard so from... sad that he's gone. Yeah, mm. this one of the Titans. Yeah. I, I heard from a, a friend, a mutual friend of ours who's still in the <clears> game uh, and working at Movie World at the moment was on set for Elvis. Yeah. recently for Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. And he was recounting to someone here recently the story of seeing Austin Butler, who was playing Elvis, obviously, and it's, I think uh, comes out later in the month, was premiered last night or night before on the Gold Coast. And he was saying that in every moment between takes and scenes, he was just Elvis. So when he wasn't on camera and he was just prepping or he would be moving like Elvis, singing to himself, and was constantly committed to just being that character. Yeah. So when the transition to the camera came, it was a seamless, I'm, I'm, I'm already here. Yeah. I remember hearing Daniel Day-Lewis on the set of Lincoln was the same thing. Was wow. Wanted to be referred to as Mr. President as he made his way around the set. And, and Spielberg was saying, for as long as he's here and we're shooting this, he's Mr. President. Yeah. And look at the performance. <laughs> I mean... You yeah, know? I mean, it is. It works. Peerless. Yeah. So the film side of things are happening for you. Police Academy is mm. still, still in full throttle. How long was that chapter in your life? How long was the... 15 year? years. When, so when Hollywood Stunt Driver starts to, to take life and we're transitioning 
out of Police Academy. Can you describe what your role was with that? Because that's that's a well, turning point, isn't it? It was, but yeah. it was look the story. If you'll recall, it was really kind of bizarre. The 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 I think the catalyst of the, the of the concept of the show was right in this car park. I have I have memories of you, fond memories of you sitting in my office with you'd come in with a a bag filled with Hot Wheels cars. Yeah. And you would yeah. draw the set on a sheet of butcher's paper. Yeah. And we'd be talking about scene <laughs> act, tech. act one, two and three. <laughs> and you would quite literally be okay, so this is car one. He's coming stage left. Yeah. He's gonna be sitting in about X amount of K's and he'll be He'll go into a J turn. Have I got that right? That was a Ford 360. There so we are. The first car that came out straight into a Ford 360. So go. it's a big wow factor yes. to get everyone's attention. But you would literally be there with these Hot Wheels cars, <laughs> giving me a layman's <laughs> lesson in the phrasing. And then the challenge we had was to go, okay, how do we sew a narrative oh my around God. all these that sequences? The, look, that was the hard part. Yeah. I, I thought. And, mate, cr- oh, again, credit to you that no. the, no, this, no, really please. that was a great I mean you had no don't no no I've got no, more you, please can, <laughs> no don't don't I can recall those sessions and we would literally then take John through the intention with the cars and yeah. he, he would see it in his mind and then I don't know how many months of sectioning off a portion of this, the, the, the movie world car park mm. and then having that as a training facility so yeah. it was kind of hoarded off. And prior to that, remember we had Soundstage, I think it was Soundstage ah, 8. Ah, that's correct. And we'd walked it. So I said yeah. to the guys, we're going to walk every everything. So we walked it. Every pattern. Then we brought push bikes in. And then we rode it on push bikes. That's right. We did the calls. So car one, go. Car two, go. Car three, go. Hero car, standby. Hero car, go. Push bikes had come riding in. That's great. Yeah, it was pouring rain. I'd and forgotten we were, all about yeah, that. And we're in there in the dry studio. Um, and that you... became, that actually stayed on. I don't know whether the guys are doing that now, but that stayed on, on as a staple every single day as as you know, all the procedures that had to be written yeah. for that. I remember writing procedure that, that they, all the staff had to walk that show prior to doing yeah. a slow drive, then a full speed drive. Where did that process come from for you to break it down like that so systematically? Where did you realise this is how you do this? I think that comes back to the stunt industry. Chris Anderson, yeah, like yeah. those guys would always, I remember Chris doing stuff, like he'd always come in, you'd do a walking pace, then you'd do, you know, maybe 25 or 45%, and then you'd come in, and if he was happy, then you could do a full pace. And that always sort of lent back on the, so I'd always try to lean back on whatever their, their, um, the safety parameters were that they yeah. would work for those guys. It's going to work for us here, even though, yeah. even though it's a live show. We needed to do that 364 days a year, as you know, yeah. and we needed to have have everyone's movement second nature in their head. We didn't want anyone guessing. Do I go? Do I not go? That's, so, yeah. It's almost like the science of structuring safety, isn't it? There's a science and a process to Absolutely, st- yeah. structuring yeah, safety. Yeah, you do a risk assessment and then from that you will might maybe look at the worst case scenario and work back. Did you see parallels of your own life? Vic has been a, a, a thread through this whole conversation, but did you, see, did you see echoes of, oh, I'm now in this seat looking for potential, coaching and mentoring? 
And then in some, to varying degrees, you would have to mentor because obviously you had different calibers of drivers. It's yeah. interesting how the, there was this organic flow where you were almost now doing as Vic had once done for you. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I never really thought about it like that, but it's, I guess, when I look back on it now in sitting here with you, I, there was definitely the, the influences from Vic, like, yeah. you know, and, and Chris as well. Yeah. And, and other stunt guys, like other stunt people, Joe Schwager that I worked for, you know, um, Danny Baldwin, all these guys, Paul Phillips, Harvey Phillips, whenever I worked on car, he never left anything to chance. Yeah. Everyone, everything was double checked. All the carabiners, everything was double checked. You're around that long enough, it becomes second nature to you too. There's often a line that's said that leaders are learners, leaders are readers. Do you... Do you feel like you were able, obviously, to keep a level of humility the whole way through? And I imagine people like Paul Harvey Phillips and, and so on, each of these guys and girls have had these long careers, wouldn't be able to do it if they couldn't keep a... Uh, you have to have that confidence and that mm. self-belief. But you, I imagine in order to keep learning and growing, you also have to have an equal share of humility. Yeah, I, I, I think it goes back, for me personally, I, know, I can't speak on their behalf, no. but... For me personally, I look back at the, again, who helped me up. I look at the influence from Vic and I still to this day, I've, I've, I've said to him, mate, I'm, I thank you for this. I thank for you for the, my, this life I've got now <laughs> has happened because of you. The stunt industry has led me to what I'm doing with all the car stuff, all the stuff I did in America. I was in, you know, I'll get to some of that in a second, but I, you know, working with the Navy SEALs, for God's sake, yeah. in the United States. I'm going, what? How did I get here? Well, let's jump you to know? that in a second. Yeah. I just, if you had to summarise that Hollywood stunt driver experience, when that got to a stage where the show was running and humming and the nuts and bolts of it were in place, did you? how did that feel for you when you sat, sat in the audience and looked at it, when it was at its full glory? Oh, oh my God. It was... Every day, I was so proud of that show, and I was so proud of that team. They were so good at what they did. Um, you know, you had guys in there; something could go wrong, and they were just so professional. You know, um, but not only that, just the sheer talent in the cars. Yeah. You know, tight drifting. You know, um, two wheeling, bigger eights on two wheels. I'd never seen know? anything like that. It, I remember when you first showed me what that could look like when mm. we were off in pre-production mm. and it just took my breath away. Phenomenal. And then, and then to actually say, now we're going to put multi-vehicles out there doing that with crossovers and yeah. figure eights. You go, what? Yeah. It was, again, it was, a, it was something in my head and I'm just thinking, oh my God, I hope I can pull this off. Yeah. If we, but, but I think it was just blind faith. It's, it's interesting. You know, I still see and hear people comment not only on how wonderful Police Academy was and mm. the history that's associated with that, but I think when you live long enough and you've been in and around it long enough, you get to hear things come back to you about other things that you were a part of. And I've heard that from people on Hollywood Stunt Driver 1, mm. where for some kids, that was their Police Academy. And yeah. it was the show that, that was introduced to them when they came to Movie World. Mum mm. and Dad had come in on Police Academy. Um, I remember being responsible for Action Man Lives at Wonderland Sydney and that had its challenges with its opening, had its challenges and a lot of creative compromise to get it opened. So I was always looking at that show through a filter of 
yeah, but it's it was meant to be so much more than what it could have. But I'll occasionally get people, theme park people, that remember Wonderland Sydney will say, oh, I used to love coming to Wonderland as a kid and sitting and watching the Action Man stunt show. Wow. And I, and yeah, I, I, just, cool. I just simply say, thank you. Yeah, you, you, cool. you don't tell them all the things that you wish it could have been. So, but it's interesting when you live long enough, you hear these things have meaning for people yeah. and it gets passed on for people. That, that park life chapter for you um, has many crescendos in it and obviously opened up doors into the film and television industry, opened up a stunt career. Uh, where you're rubbing shoulders with some of the, some of the finest in Hollywood, shooting out here in Australia. When you find yourself having to reinvent who Gavin's going to be, and that happens in the states mm. for for a whole bunch of reasons, you find yourself in the states. The first opportunity that comes your way then is to take the car passion into Porsche. Is that correct? No, it was actually uh, a company called Exotics Racing right? that owned a bunch of Lamborghinis and Ferraris and they had Porsches as well. Um, uh, McLarens, they have a, a, a real f- a fleet of cars and they have a, two tracks. They have a track in Las Vegas and a track in Los Angeles. And the one at Los Angeles, um, uh, that's where I started. Um, and basically, it's a driving experience on a racetrack in a in a supercar. So you've got to, all you're doing is wearing a helmet, no Hans device, no harnesses. You're in there and giving these people as a what we call right seating instructor. So you're looking at them driving. Obviously, they're driving left hand drive, um, and you're coaching them. So they might buy ten laps and they want to drive that car as fast as they can to say, I drove a Ferrari, you know, or, or a a Huracan, Lamborghini Huracan, or a 911 GT3 flat out on a racetrack. Because we've all, you know, I remember over the years I'd go, I'd love to do that. Surely that's got to be a dream gig. It was a, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Had its challenges, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. Because you've got, to, you've got to remember these people have just, um, the girlfriend's paid the boyfriend to come in. They've, some of these, well, most of these people have never driven on a racetrack. Right. Let alone a car with, you know, 600, 700 horsepower. Um, it, it was, it was had its moments. I remember the biggest moment I ever had was in a GTR, Nissan GTR. 650 horsepower on this thing. The driver got in. It's funny, I think the Ferraris and that and the Lambos maybe scared them a little bit because they were so light. Yeah. But this thing had brutal power. Brutal power. And it's loud. And I remember we did a slow lap. I talked the cornering lines, the, the entry apex exit, talked about all that. The relax the hands, keep your vision up. And then I said, okay, let's start to build up our pace. And as the faster we got, and then I suppose third lap in, we're, we're going pretty hot. So we're probably doing about 120 miles an hour on one of the straight. What's the conversion on that? So it's probably about 175, 100, closer to 180 Ks. And which on the big scheme of things isn't really that fast when we say, you know, say Phillip Island, we're doing well over 200 Ks. Your customers are doing, you know, 220. Insane. At their highest, the, the I guess, level two program that we do, they're doing, you know, big speeds. Yeah. Uh, but the track over there was a lot smaller. So the straightaway was shorter and the corner, the dog leg over there was quite sharp. And this guy, 
I guess he target fixated on the beginning of like early on the corner so that he looked through the corner way too early so starts turning early and now he's not braking hard enough and you're in the car with you're in the car and you you're saying things like okay eyes up we're going to accelerate 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 so it's um, full throttle so over there we say throttle in Australia we say accelerate but over there it's full throttle full throttle full throttle because you want them to feel the acceleration but then we'd say okay and neutral throttle or throttle maintenance now eyes up to the corner and brake brake hard brake harder brake harder brake harder turn it smoothly in turn it in eyes right look for the apex well he's just looked at the apex all the way down the straight and now he's starting to creep in early and i go and i reach over and just touch the wheel because i don't want you don't you know you, you when you're driving an experience like that you don't want someone touching the wheel you want to drive the car it's your yeah. you paid money to drive don't touch the wheel mate i'm driving this thing i know boats well this guy's turned in so quick and now we're into this we knew we weren't going to get through the on stay on the track but the track kind of sort of went through a bit of a chicane so he's hit the brakes and I'm because I'm saying brake harder, brake harder, brake harder, brake harder, and you get louder with the fear that creeps in. And now we've just gone straight through the basically the behind the, the curve and through the the back of the the um, the ripple strip and gone straight through it. And he's just white. So the the funny part about this lot this work is after a while it takes a lot more to scare you. And if there is ever a problem, so he did the right thing, and basically as I touched the wheel, it kept him straight. Yeah. If we tried to keep turning, we, we would have been in a world of trouble because it, on the outside of that corner, if he tried to take the chicane and go uh, sort of to the right, then to the left, he wouldn't have made it to the left. We would have gone, you know, physics won't, wouldn't allow it. We yeah. would have gone straight ahead into the wall. Wow. It was a, the big water barriers, but still not concrete, but yeah. it still would have destroyed that car. Yeah. So. He did the right thing. It was a big moment. Um, it was a good lesson for me as well. All those cars have cameras in them. So yeah. the chief instructor saw that vision. Um, amazing guy that I worked with in the States, yeah. um, Kevin Madsen. He, uh, says, Is that the equivalent of a black box kind of? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's they, they get the chip out. So they can actually buy that footage. And a lot of like V8 Super School yes. up here at Norwell, uh, V8 Race in Melbourne that, and that travel the country, they all have that too. You can gotcha. buy that bit of footage. Sorry to cut you off. So yeah. what, what, what was the feedback you got? Um, I think we needed to be on the brakes a bit earlier, Gav. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and he was right. We probably should have, I should have got him. So, you know, it's, uh, I get it in these big, high-powered cars that people want to feel that acceleration but if they don't have the understanding of how hard to brake we know i know how hard how good these cars can stop but if the general you know public don't understand that they just don't press hard enough yeah. so you're in there going brake harder brake harder brake harder to the top of your lungs yeah. but if you're in a fever dream in your head and that's the thing you don't yeah. even hear that no. no and so his foot was to the brake just yeah. wasn't pushing hard yeah. And we can go to the e-brake, which is the park brake in the car. It's a button, like right. a lot of modern cars have got that little park brake that you pull on, the electric brake. That puts the car in a full ABS. I had my fingers to it when I touched, and I had one hand like this, and as I'm about to pull it, we, I knew we were safe because we were going straight. And then I just pulled my hand away and then say, okay, let's, let's just learn from that. Let's make sure we slow down harder next time. <laughs> we finished his session. Yeah. He just didn't go that hot up to that corner. What, what do people not appreciate about the art of driving that just the everyday person, when they're on the road, 
with all your years of experience, just briefly, I know we're jumping off, off topic for a little bit, but what's one of the most common things that people could remember in order to keep safe? I think just, just really to just to use their vision more, yeah. you know, to plan further ahead down the road, to plan their way through. A Have an intent. Yeah. I mean, if you're coming up to a corner at speed and the sign, the, you know, the, the, the uh, speed advisory says 80 Ks, it's a, let's say it's a left-hand corner. It's most people in Australia, uh, one would might even say it's un-Australian to go through it. If it says 80, I'm not going through at 80. I'm going to go through that at 100. You know what I mean? So they tend, we tend to take corners faster. Most people do. Um, more often than not, a lot of people don't slow down to speed advisory signs. It says, you know, you can stay at the same speed limit sign uh, uh, through that corner. But I would suggest that people just need to use their eyes more. Look, if you can't see where that corner ends, hmm. slow down. Yeah. It says 80 for a reason. Um, uh, and, and again, just scanning, car, you know, looking around and having that situational awareness in cars. Um, Again, working with the, uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but working with some of the military guys in the States, um, especially like the SEALs, Navy SEALs, um, you, those guys would often, and I learn a lot from those guys with vision because they're constantly looking, constantly scanning, not just ahead, what's happening behind me? Yeah. Where do I place my car so that I can always have an escape route, whether it's far <laughs> right or far left lane? Ordinarily, we don't drive down the middle. They, that's what they'd say to us. Because... If we end up in rows of traffic, we can't get out. Does that make sense? I, know, I don't know how much of this you can talk about, but can you stay in that space for a minute? And how do you end up transitioning into working with the Navy SEALs? <laughs> and then how does that relate to the work that you do? So it was a little bit of a segue there. So yeah. um, Exotics Racing led me to, uh, well, they were building the PEC Porsche Experience Center. So I applied there, interviewed, Got the got a role as an instructor, um, and they certify you there as a certified Porsche instructor. Um, whilst I was there, um, this one particular day, and I my time at the PEC was phenomenal. If you, anyone ever goes to Los Angeles, if you're just remotely interested in any kind of cars, go and see this place. Sixty million dollar facility, fifty three acres. There's a one point three five mile circuit. Mm. There's an ice hill. There's an, uh, a kick plate that throws the car sideways. Crazy. There's a drift circuit. It's a, it's a, it really is amazing. And the team of instructors there are second to none. They are brilliant, brilliant people. Yeah. No egos. Yeah. Not one of them has an ego. And the chief instructor's done a brilliant job of doing that. I remember when I interviewed, I said to him, um, um, Johnny, even if I don't get this job, I'm so excited for you that you can pick a team into this job, into this into this facility, and not have those big egos that you're going to be fighting every day. You know. Yeah. Anyway, about a year into, or maybe a yeah, about a year, six six months to a year into it, um, this guy walks in and Johnny says to me, Gav, um, I want you to take Matt and Matt Foley, his name was, and I want you to take Matt around and show him the venue now i looked at this guy and porsche make you have a look you had to be clean shaven shirt tucked in um haircut you had to look look the porsche look we called it yeah this guy looked like he just walked out of a forest big <laughs> bushy hair yeah big beard it was un looked unkempt yeah. you know it was it, and 
big stocky fella. I'm thinking, wow, is this guy going for a job here? He doesn't have that look. But anyway, didn't say much. Was quite a pretty quiet guy. Um, So I started from the, I had spent a whole day with him. Took him, showed him how to swipe in, showed him where the cars are kept, how we um, get our radio, earpieces, all that stuff. What we do with the, how we speak to the customer, give them a coffee before we go out on the circuit. Talked, we were on the circuit, we did all-wheel drive cars, so we showed him how to do all-wheel drifting, rear-wheel drive drifting, this is what we do. Talked about parallax error with our vision, why we don't lean our head to get depth percent, all this stuff. And when I talked about that, he goes, oh, so, yeah, I know. So we do something slightly different to that where where I work uh, over in the East Coast. Um, and, he ta- and he told me what they told. I've never once heard anyone talk about parallax error in their talk with the customers. No other instructor when I talk about it has never heard of it, um, except for people that, that came out of the Frank Gardner School. That's kind of where it came from. And there was a bio, study on the biomechanics of driving that went through the driving centre. That's sort of, they delved into that. For the layperson, what is it? It's effectively if you tilt your head over when you're driving, say you're coming up to a corner and you tilt your head over, you have a dominant eye. So we have binocular vision, we have two eyes, and it and we, whilst our head and horizon is level, we have perfect depth perception, yeah? Because the two eyes can d- discern the distance to, the, to a certain point on the road. When you tilt your head over, we see it all the time when we're track, doing track stuff. If I'm left seating one-on-one in a car, high speed on a circuit, say Phillip Island, hot into turn one, they're leaning their head into the corner, and I now we're right either almost over the top of the ripple strip or not even to the ripple strip. It, I know that their depth perception is out. So when I str- get them to straighten their head up, use their legs more to lock into the cockpit of the car, l- keep the horizon level, hmm. all of a sudden they can dial that in. I could, it's, it's more of a visual thing. It'd be hard for, to show mm. you that, but I can show you after, the, after we're talking and how that works. It's quite amazing mm. when, you, when you see it and feel it. It's like, oh, oh my God, that's why I'm going over the double white lines on a really tight corner in a windy road or off on the edges on a windy road. So anyway, this guy mentioned this to me and I went, okay, that's weird. You're a dark horse. You know a lot more than you're sort of saying here. End of the day. Day finishes, shakes my hand, says, thanks, mate, thank you, leaves. And I'm thinking, that was just, wow, that, that was just strange. I go to leave, I had a buddy with me, we're going, going to get to my truck, and here he is, this is Matt, standing up against his motorcycle, he had a big BMW bike, and he's just, I said, mate, are you, you, you okay? Can you start, is your bike broken down? He goes, no, no, I'm waiting for you. This is in the car park. I was thinking, okay. And I said, oh, mate, jump in the truck. I'll be there in a sec. And he, so I said, is everything all right? He goes, yeah. He said, look, you told me about what you do with the stunt driving and all this stuff and some of the things we talked about and showed me what you can do in the cars. Let me give you my card. And I go, okay. Just had his name on the phone. I'm sorry, Matt, what do you do? He goes, "Um, I have a company that trains uh, government agencies, and I'm a I'm a part, I have a business partner, um, Don. My, his business partner was Don. Oh my goodness, I've forgotten his Don's surname. But Don was a legend when it came to training the original pit maneuver, that kind of thing. When we were training police, they had a pit. He was one of the first guys to teach that. Don Barrick, 
amazing instructor. And just for the layperson, for me included, the pit manoeuvre is... is um, basically when the police car hits the back of the car and spins it around. Ah, yeah. Got it. So, yeah, you've seen it on police chases yeah. and movies and things. Yeah. So, so anyway, he says, send me your resume. I want to put it to Don that I'm, I want to bring you on board. And I go, okay. Just, again, Johnny on the spot. Yeah. Why did... Um, you know, the chief instructor at Porsche, give me this guy. Now there's another door cracking open here. So it took a few months and they, uh, the, I didn't know this, but they do all these checks and they yes. do, yeah. So they're obviously the government checks on you yeah. to make sure that you're not some kind of dodgy, you know, person that could hurt the, you know, the country. Yeah. Um, get a phone call. Gav, this is, a, I'm going to send you some stuff. This is the site you need to go to. This is what we do. It was, so one of the things that they do is they train the Navy SEALs, one through six, to SEAL teams. Yep, SEAL Team 6 was the one that took yeah. out Obama. So it wasn't, wasn't the guys that took Obama, um, uh, sorry, Osama out. Yeah. Uh, it was the, the next generation. Yeah. But again, an amazing bunch of human beings. I'm thinking, and I said to him, Matt, uh, Mate, I just you know I'm not military, and he goes, no one needs no one. Those guys won't know that, but what you can do in a car and what you can teach is what I need, and what my team needs. So I get there. We're we're <laughs> at um, um, uh, golly, it's near Fort Carson in uh, Colorado, so Colorado Springs, Colorado, yeah, Colorado Springs, and um, anyway, we we arrive. Pikes Peak International, just up the road. Pikes Peak's right there. We can see the mountain. Um, and so we get, we leave the hotel and we go out to Pikes Peak uh, International. And he goes, so we've got, the, we train the Navy SEALs, we train the Pentagon, we train the State Department, and they rattle off a bunch of other agencies. Those are the main three that I can remember training in the cars. Yeah. Incredible people yeah. that are doing incredible stuff around the world in my car and I had two up for the entire program. We run for about seven days. Yeah. And um, so we'd have these guys and we'd teach them everything from high performance driving on a track. So Pikes Peak International, which is the uh, banking, they had banking there for um, the NASCARs. Then all the infield. So we did tactical vehicle interventions where you'd have um, two or three car, or car chasing another car. They pit it and then they'd do a, what they call a pit pin. So they'd pit with one, that car would get to the back. The second car would come in and ram to lock them off. The third car would pick what side that car would try and get out of and go and lock that off. Then they would obviously be taking fire into that car. It was crazy stuff. Then there was um, uh, traffic formation manipulation. So we'd have a bunch of cars driving like a formation on a freeway. We'd have the six seals, two up, so uh, two cars, so they'd have three, uh, so, so they'd have, sorry, three cars, so I apologize, six of the, six cars with them in it, they'd have like an arrowhead. Mm -hmm. So they'd come and push their way through with three cars, the next arrow would go through and split. The next arrow would go through. Amazing. And so they, these maneuvers, were they given to you as maneuvers to be trained? No. Or were you conceiving it with them? Like no. This? So they, Matt, I got there. Matt goes, this is what we're doing today. Uh, we're doing traffic formation manipulation. Right. I go, Gav, that's your car. And they're ex-police cars. They're ex-big right. Ford, um, you know, cop cars. Yeah. And uh, Crown Victorias. And um, 
and I'm looking around, and, and so the guy, the t- I meet the team. The team looked like something out Super of soldiers. Oh, my God. Yeah. The, the, these are the trainers. Now, the, right. the SEALs and those guys just look like normal guys. Yeah. Crazy superhuman strength, some of these blokes, but they just look like normal people. But again, so highly trained. Yes. Oh my gosh! Like, honestly, like I just think back, it's just mind—it's mind blowing to think yeah. I was working with these guys. Anyway, Matt goes, "You know what to do, mate. This is the the sequence we do. For example, we do um, uh, 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 one through a uh, one three one three uh, one two one. So one lap, showing them what to do. Yeah. This, uh, three laps, them driving. The third lap." is what we call RFS, right front seat. And that would mean that the driver, so I'd become the driver, I'd get back and be the driver again. They would uh, basically on the first, turn one, 80 miles an hour into turn one at say High Plains International, which is where we did a lot of high speed stuff. You'd throw the wheel and throw the car off the side of the circuit. And that seal would have to unclip his belt and take over that car. So he would ra- either wrap you with a belt, get the guy in the back to come in and take Pull you into the seat. Crazy. Yep. He would then come over and use his arm to the left arm to the door, left foot to pedals, do a brake check, throttle oh. check, hand, right hand to the wheel. Now he's driving like this on top of you. Right foot to the passenger door. So if that makes sense, it's like I'm doing a yoga move. Yeah. Now, flat out. And as we're going along, another car comes out and it's a Pressure drive. Yeah. And he's bumping you from behind. Amazing stuff, man. And, th- and you're in the car during I'm all this. I'm in the this. car being a dead body. I'm the dead body driving. I've been taken out. So a sniper's taken me, yeah. and I'm literally a dead weight. So mid-corner, I have to roll with it. Insane. I, if, it's, if it's a left-hand turn, I'm pushing against this great big yeah. strong bugger, and I'm going, I can't breathe. Just, it just come off me a little bit. I can't breathe. Because he's shoving you, because he's driving flat out with adrenaline, flat out. And so, and then we did it at night insane. with NVGs, night yeah. vision goggles. Um, and that's just the beginning of it, mate. There was so much rally driving. We did four wheel drive, train. We did rally driving, rear wheel drive, and front wheel drive. Flat out. <laughs> You've had a, like every boy's adventure life. Amazing. Like a, it's, it's like a. Oh, Again, you... but I've got to say, mate, yeah. right there, I, the, the, I was on those days. And I, was, I remember stopping going, oh my God, I'm so thankful. Yeah. To the people behind me that yeah. helped me to get to yeah. this, Vic Wilsons, the Chris Andersons, yes. the yourself, like the because you had to. There was parts. There was acting in this yeah, yeah. sometimes. You know, yeah. none of those seals knew that I wasn't ex-military. Yeah. All the other team were either ex-military or current serving or ex-police uh, officers. It's Highway almost like you're on, so on set. Yeah. Yeah. As yep. well. Yep. There's coordinated action. There's players. Yep. yep. And all we were wearing were military, like looked like bike helmets. Yeah. It's because you had to click your NVG on the front of it. So I've still got my helmet at home, but it's just a block. It looks like a bike helmet. Yeah. And that's all we were wearing in these cars. No cages. We're doing over 100 miles an hour. That's over 160 Ks on the straightaway, getting bumped at the back. And then it was my turn and I'd be bumping them. And I'm laughing my head off, laughing so much. Because we weren't allowed to bump them in the corners, but I remember one guy, we we're doing, he's probably doing 80 miles an hour because he's turned into the king. He slowed down a bit, turned into this kink, this right hander, and it goes left hander over a hill and down. 
and I've come and we weren't allowed to touch them but we could make noise beat the horn or skid the wheel yes. well if you imagine driving on the left hand side and yes. I come screaming up on your inside as you're about to turn into because he knew his cornering lines and I knew his cornering lines so I've come up and I've stomped on the brakes because we disengage all the ABS on the car yeah. so the wheel skids so now you've got a car he could reach out and touch the the side of my car here out his door yeah. And it's skidding, smoke's pouring off the tyres, and of course, at 80 miles an hour, that on the wheel, because he's gone, <gasps> and then he's gone back to his corner, has now put that car into a tank slapper. And now he's trying to catch it, <laughs> trying to catch it the other way, trying to catch it, and it's spun around, gone sideways off the road, and torn the whole rear wheel off the car. It was crazy. That's I'm, incredible. Incredible. And the, one of the guys in the back, I didn't know, had his camera, had his phone up filming it. So I've got the footage. The footage would be insane. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't show anybody any no, of that. Because no. obviously I'm not, we, no. I'm not allowed to have it. But I, I hope you're allowed to even tell the story. I can tell the story. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You, when you finish that chapter, what, yep. what, what, what happens next? You're still on the stage? Oh, just, just let me just say this. So, yeah. so part, whilst I'm doing all this, yeah. I ended up on a, on a Cadillac. You know, you've heard of Cadillac. Yes. So, you know, on a tour. We, did, we were coaching on Cadillac, very similar uh, program to what I'm doing with BMW right now. So it's lead follow. Gotcha. Um, like Ducks and Drakes, flat out on a racetrack. Daytona. Daytona. So not world... It's iconic. Like, yeah. Iconic track. Yeah. Um, Circuit of the Americas, which is the Formula One track in Texas. Like, flat out in these yeah. amazing cars yeah. with customers. I still keep in touch with one of the customers. She was... She actually had a bad headache this particular day and said, Gav, I don't think I can drive anymore. Is there a chance I can get in with you? I've never had anyone sit, like, um, what's that, right seat while I'm driving. She gets in. We do a bunch of laps. She didn't say a word. And you've got to remember, we're doing this, we're doing, you know, on the straight at, say, at at, um, the Formula One track in Texas, we're doing probably 135, 140 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, so one, it's almost 200 Ks. Um, and talking on the radio, looking in the mirror, like this, one-handed. So the whole thing's driving one-handed. And she goes, I didn't, I thought you guys had head mics or something on. I didn't know you were doing all this one hand and pressing a button on your radio and watching us in the mirror and knowing where you're going, leading us around. So. It was crazy. Yeah. It was such an experience. Do you find as you move from one vehicle to another in different kinds of cars, are you able to get into a state where you adapt your mind or your presence and you almost become one with the vehicle? Is that like a real thing where you almost, I would, you're in tune? I mean, honestly, I would almost say that about this new BMW, the new G80, the new M4, M3, M4, that platform yeah. that they've got now here yeah. that they've released. Mainly because it's more of a 50-50, like, you know, and they, they, they talk this 50-50 weight balance up. Right. You know, most when car builders, they build cars, they try to get to a 50-50 weight balance. So a little bit like a mid-engine car almost driving through corners. So yeah. it's so intuitive and so responsive and, oh my gosh, just a beautiful car to drive. Oh, you know, joking, you joke about being one with the car, but I've got to say... Yeah, not even joking, thing, but is it a... Is, is, is it how a, I feel sometimes. Yeah, is yeah. that a real thing? Yeah. Yeah, after a while, because we spend so much time in the car, you yeah. get to manipulate it through corners and things like that, coaching I th- I, with people. I, I think long before Lightning McQueen said it, I think uh, Schumacher made a comment in his prime that 
he would get to a state in with the car where he no longer felt like he was separate from it. That he, he would get into that flow state, which a lot of athletes talk about, where I'm just at one with the experience that I'm in. And it, it, did, mm. you, did you find that? From time to time, yeah. 100%. Yeah. From time to time, not all the time. No. Because the, obviously things, there's variables, there's yes. tires that wear. Yes. With BMW, we, we get And it's a different drift. kind of discipline. So, yeah. And when we do our hot laps, we do a fast, clean lap, and then we do a drift lap. And after the drift lap, obviously those rear tires are pretty much done. You know, we're you know fourth gear pinned through some of these corners, and it's fast and lots of smoke, and so those tires aren't going to. The adhesion isn't there anymore. You know what I mean? So, of course, there's changes in that car, but through the days, you know, especially some of the long days when you're doing say level twos or lots of laps on the circuit, you definitely feel that. You definitely feel like wow, I just this I feel like I cannot screw this up in this car. You know, you all of a sudden I've got the radio in my head. Because that's what you do. That's yeah, how you drive. Yeah. Um, but you do feel that and I I the one thing that I do notice, Michael, is I find coaching and I've been coaching for so long in these cars, especially through Porsche and Audi and Cadillac and now BMW and Mercedes and um, BMW now, of course, is um, that I find a little bit of that fear isn't there anymore and that I have to remind myself, these people haven't done this, you know, let's ease this off a little. You're starting to drive a little maybe to that to a level, to a point where one mistake back there, they could potentially go off the circuit. So I do find I do, I do, do that a little bit. Yeah. And, and when I'm coaching in a car, if I'm right or right left seating, so in Australia or right seating in America, I wasn't. I'm, I don't get scared anymore. And that yeah. that is, I don't know if that's a good thing. No, I think what you're saying is that you probably want to have a little part of you that's always aware that there needs to be a constant respect for the vehicle. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, Philip Island. I was just uh, only a few months ago. I was coaching in. Um, a 997 GT3 Cup car. So that's a super quick Porsche. Yeah, really fast car. Full cage, full oh, race car. Yeah. yeah. And I'm right, uh, left seating in this car. And the guy couldn't hear me, but we'd pull out into the pits every now and give him some notes. Um, he had a couple, he was overdriving that car. He was busy and working, you know, and pushing through corners. He was lifting off mid-corner in a Porsche, not a good idea because all the weight's at the back and it wants to come around and lead with that weight. So what we call lift-off oversteer. Having some big moments in this thing, but fast, wow. He was he was still fast, but messy. Um, I remember we after all these notes and having a few times into the pits, we'd go back out. And then I got out of the car and I, I remember thinking, oh, I went and sat at lunch and I still felt like I'm in because it's so loud in there, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I'm thinking, one of the guys said, oh, how was such and such in that car? And I've gone, he's messy, but I gave him some notes, changed how he sat, and I've told him to bring it back to six tenths to slow it right down, get his lines changed to where we've talked about it, and what we, what we talk about with throttle maintenance and relying on that rear grip, rear end grip. He came, This guy came in after his last run. As I got up from lunch, tapped me on the shoulder and went, Gav, I just drove like I felt like I was going seven tenths which is way slower than what I was doing before and I just broke my lap record um but what takes me back was the moments that we're having in that car we could have potentially gone off at say turn three at 
200 230 k's yeah. and there it's a hospital job right. yeah it would have been a big hit he yeah. would have written his car off um if he'd gone off he didn't but but again i there are moments where after the fact i stopped because i wasn't frightened at all yeah. and he'd have moments and i go okay let's learn from that let's move on um We've got to be smoother through that corner or relax your hands, you know, because when people squeeze the wheel, they stop turning. Yeah. So they go too wide on the corner. Now they're out in the pebbles, out in the yeah. rubbish. So there's things like that. And it's. I think I just have to, I, from time to time, I definitely remind myself to, you know, um, uh, just have presence of mind that, that um, this could go pear-shaped really fast. At any and moment. I, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the only thing with it is I'm, yeah. I'm not feeling that fear anymore. Yeah, yeah. So it's good you can catch yourself and be that self-aware and understand the importance of just having a little bit of presence yeah. in there. I, I always ask the same couple of questions as I get to the end of these, and thanks for giving me so much time. It's such a big life that you've packed in. I guess the first thing I'd say, if you could go back in time and talk to that kid at Walgett, mm. I get that right? Yeah, Walgett. <laughs> Walgett. Yeah, if you could go back and say to that kid, Look, I think here's how things are going to work out. What would you say to that kid? I would say, I would love to say, at the right now you don't know it, but you've got blinkers on. You've got to pull those blinkers off and see the world. See the there's so many opportunities out there. Um, just give it a go. Give it a go. Have some self belief. Um, you know, oh, wow, uh, and it's. My dad was a Second World War vet, like I mentioned. Um, Off my he head. used to say to me, "Son, work hard at school. You've got to be better at math. You're not you're not real good at math." And it was a barrier to me. I was I was always embarrassed that I wasn't really good at math. And um, so whenever people would say, "Oh, you should go and do this. Go and get your pilot's license." And friends of mine are pilots, and they go, "Man, come and fly. I'll teach you to fly." But back then, I go. Oh no, my dad says I'm not real good at math. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go even give that a go. Um, even getting into the stunt industry, there's some obviously there's some physics in that, and I had barriers in the beginning that I made myself, like jumping cars and things. I'd go, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is for me. I don't but it's interesting it. we get these little loops of inner dialogue that yeah. get programmed into us when we're kids, and if we're not careful, they can stay there all through your adult life. Yeah. And you find out as you get older, they're unnecessary and they're yeah. self-limiting. But you obviously have managed to build a very impressive life following passion. One of the things I think comes up in your life journey and someone I was talking to recently in a, in a recent episode of Park Life said a similar thing from a completely different field entirely. But his theory to life was I always said yes. And then I figured I'd learn as I got in. So if someone said, hey, here's an opportunity. Would you like to try this? Yeah. Yeah. And then even if the part of me went, I'm not really sure, but I can always walk away if I decide I can't, but I don't want to not walk in if it's an opportunity. You know and what? I you've think... got a pattern of saying yes. Yeah. I never realised it until you said that. Yeah. And you're right. You've said yep. yes. Gav, um, Vic says you should come and audition. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're going to try some high falls. Sure. Yeah. You should look at this as a career path. You've got something to offer. Mm. Okay. I mean, you're right. Never at any point are you going... Nah, that's. I think I'll pass. And, and mate, I, look, I, I know kids in the bush, like the young kids that are out there now that are amazing on bikes. And I think, wow, the stunt industry could probably use people like this. They've got that, you know, they've got the ability there. They yeah. don't even know. Potential. 
That's the key the word for today's for tonight's conversation. Yeah. Uh, last couple of questions. If you could tell me very quickly, uh, if you had to look back, what's one of your proudest moments? Sounds like you've got a bunch. If I asked oh. you now, what's the first one that pops into your head where you were consciously aware, I'm proud of this? You know, I want to say my kids. Yeah. I, I know it's, you know, it's the old thing, no. but it's uh, like I just, my boys, they, they blow my mind every day they still i still they still surprise me at what they can do you know they're they're good human beings and they're growing into good men and i i just i'm so proud of them nothing better genuinely proud of these boys and and the more they do like jonah will say something to me and i'll be thankful for something and i go wow mate 14 years old and you're going hey listen i'm really Thanks so much for that, Dad. Like, I really appreciate you doing that. 14 years old. That's great. You know, um, take, you know, it might just be driving him to basketball, but it's just, I don't know. It sounds like little things, but they are, they're definitely, I feel like, my biggest achievement. And um, they're just, I just can't, I'm excited for them for the, the life that they're going to experience. Because you you're know? seeing potential in them as well. Yeah, right? and I just hope greatness. that they, they don't have those blinkers. Because that my dad kind of gave, I believe my dad put on me. Unconsciously. Wanted, unconsciously, yeah. 100%. Yeah. But, um, but I just hope that they just take the opportunity, travel the world. Um, yeah. Uh, look, you know, right now, I, I think maybe Police Academy. I think the Police Academy's, oh, actually, you know what? No, HSD. H, it's a $10 million show. Hey, listen, you uh, only get to answer one You've, you, now you've given me a whole list. Yeah, I have. <laughs> Listen, what gets you out of bed now? Like I could see when I first saw you tonight before we sat and recorded how enthusiastic you were and how alive you were after having a day on the track for BMW. But what gets you out of bed? What's the juice? Wow. Why do it? That can be a deep question um, <laughs> in, a, in a couple of minutes. Um, man, I just, I love life. I love people. You know, Mm. Um, I feel so thankful and lucky, genuinely thankful. Uh, I've got my hands together in the prey position right now to for for every opportunity that I've ever been given. And I know there's more. There's more coming. I feel like I'm, I'm so lucky to have people in my life like yourself, like all my other amazing friends in the USA, my beautiful friends here in Australia. Going to Melbourne where I think I don't know anybody. I've got a great circle of friends there now. Just people. Um, I think the excitement for what's the future is is because it's such still an unknown. Um, and I know there's more wonderful things ahead. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think for me, in summary, listening to you, you know, there is a narrative, few narrative threads running through your life. And that is say yes. See where... Yes takes you. Understand the importance of mentorship. Be in a state of gratitude. Yeah. And if you yeah. can do those things, yeah. largely it should mean life will be more fulfilling than not. Mm. And I think when you mentioned the importance of hearing your sons talk about gratitude, how much that meant to you, that seems to be a theme in your life mm. as well. Yeah. That it's funny. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Gratitude. Right. You just finished by saying the same thing again mm. there. I love life. I love being here. Yeah. Grateful to be here. I often say, you know, I hear people bemoan their journey or 
you know, I'm owed something from life. I've often said in the past, you know, life doesn't owe you anything, you're here. So life says, we're done, we're good. I've kept up my end of the bargain. Mm. You're consciously aware and you're here. So our deal's done. Now it's on you. If what I are could, you contributing? It's funny, you know, one of the, someone said something the other day, um, you know, uh, how did you get the opportunities in America? I think a lot of it, and I've done this, I did this after I left Movie World. I, mean, I kind of did it when I was here a little bit, but after I left, I just wanted to surround myself. I made a conscious decision. And a lot of it was you. A lot of it was, you influenced a lot in my life. No, we'll go on. into that later. No, come on, um, But seriously, um, there was definitely a big influence and it's still there when I still even deliver talks, even today when I delivered my talk to my group at BMW. Um, and... Um, oh, where was I going with that now? Um, is oh gosh, I've lost my train of thought now. <laughs> That's oh not my possible. god, I, I did. I just <laughs> lost. Um, uh, we're talking about being thankful. Oh, surround yourself with positive people. Yeah, that right there mm. opened so many doors for me in America, and it still opens me, doors for me now. Yeah. When you know, you know what I mean. You get with someone. Oh, woe is me, and yeah. oh the. Now we've got over COVID. We've got yes. the chicken pox. Yes. Was it the monkey pox or whatever? Yes, and and, mur- and murder, on. murder hornets. Stay away, murder hornets. There's murder hornets. I just walk and away. Rain bombs. There's rain bombs <laughs> there's now. Rain bombs. There was yeah, a time exactly. when it was just a thunderstorm. That's right. But there's rain bombs coming. Man, and honestly, you can get pulled under with that. But well, if yeah. you're around, and I found it in the states, the group of friends I had over there, just so positive, and that energy you yeah. feed off it. And then the people you're working, you know, the guests that you get, they feed off it. I often say to my kids that human beings are all about energy and frequency. Mm. Some people are low, low frequency. Some people are mid-level frequency. Some people are high frequency. Occasionally, when life throws what it does, you'll move between each of those layers. But moreover, you'll have a baseline. Mm. What's your baseline frequency? Is it low? Is it mid or is it high? Yeah. And then it's a question of going, well, how do I find more of my frequency in order to sustain more energy? And it's not about having your head in the clouds and not being grounded in reality, just choosing to, as you say, where's my tribe? Mm. And is my tribe going to be a tribe of high frequency people? Not ego, but Mm. high frequency people who are looking at what might be possible rather than bemoaning what is, is what it is as I see it and there's no way out. Yeah. But I, I believe it's a conscious decision. When you it get is. out of bed every morning, you make that decision. It is. And I've told my kids that. Yeah, it's the power of choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Just choose to choose to enjoy this day and, and be thankful. Or choose, being thankful or choose is, not to. And then let that also be on you as well. Yes. But you getting happy is on you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, uh, it's been a <laughs> real terrific thing to sit down with you after so long. We haven't yeah. sat and spoke for... Got to be three, four, five years. Yeah, it's been a long time. And then we literally just did this, which is why it's probably going to go down as one of the longest episodes to date. But what a great one to capture. Thanks for sitting down and getting your story on Parklife. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Good to see you. (laughs) Thanks, Mark.